Uh, we tend to default to the sciences or whatnot as offering the surest basis for knowing kind of all the stuff that we need to know about being human. You can also do it from a pervasively theological perspective, but one that isn't explicitly Christological. Think here of Jewish theologians or Muslim theologians or even many Christian theologians um, who think that some type of more broadly theological framework is the right way to approach anthropology. The argument of my book is that uh, a Christian theological anthropology should be a Christian anthropology. Um, so it should be you know, robustly rooted in uh, Christology uh, with the person and work of Jesus revealing what it means to be most fully and truly human. Does doctrine really matter? The Apostle Paul once wrote to a young pastor named Titus, instructing him to hold firm to the trustworthy word he was taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. Welcome to Credo Podcast where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. Here's your host, Dr. Matthew Barrett, executive editor of Credo Magazine and associate professor of Christian theology at Midwestern Seminary. Welcome to the Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters. I am Matthew Barrett, your host. Have you ever noticed, as soon as you open your Bible, we are introduced to humanity. Not just God, but how God has made us in his own image. This is one of the most important and significant claims, not just at the start of the Bible, but a theme that runs throughout. But it raises a lot of questions. What does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be made in the image of God? And especially, what what does Christ have to do with this discussion? Does Christ's incarnation or, say, his humanity tell us something significant about our humanity? Well, these are difficult questions to answer, and I've asked Mark Cortez to come on the podcast and take a look at some of these questions as we work through some of the theses that he's put forward on the subject. Mark Cortez is professor of theology at Wheaton College, where he has been teaching for several years now since 2013. He's a leading scholar in the area of theological anthropology, and he's offered several books on this topic, including Theological Anthropology, A Guide for the Perplexed, uh, as well as Embodied Souls and Ensouled Bodies. He's also published uh, two other books more recently called Christological Anthropology, Ancient and Contemporary Approaches to Theological Anthropology, and another volume called Resourcing Theological Anthropology, A Constructive Account of Humanity in the Light of Christ. Mark, thank you so much for joining me on the Credo Podcast. Uh, my pleasure, Matthew. Thanks for having me on. You know, when we think about theses, uh, our minds probably first go back to the 16th century to someone like Martin Luther. We think, <laughs> for example, of his 95 theses that in many ways became so uh, important for the genesis of the, what we now call the Reformation. But of course, theses are nothing new. They predated Luther, and many after Luther have written theses um, up, up until the modern period. In fact, contemporary theologians like yourself are still putting forward theses, and you've put forward 11 theses on anthropology, or what you are calling Christological anthropology. And I thought, what, what an opportunity for us to take these theses and to work through them and allow our, our listeners to engage some of your arguments uh, that, that you make, not just about who we are, but about who Christ is. So why don't we just begin with your first thesis, 
which says Jesus is the unique revelation of what it means to be truly human. Now, for some, that may sound basic, but for others, that may be revolutionary. What do you mean by that first thesis? Yeah, if I can actually back up just a second, and uh, if I think it might help your audience understand kind of what I have in mind with these theses. I actually didn't think about it until you mentioned Luther's theses, uh, because, of course, what he's doing with his theses is, is a bit different since he's putting forward his theses as a kind of a clear argument in favor of this is how things ought to be done, mm. uh, right? And kind of contrasting, you're doing it that way. That's not the right way to do it. Here's these theses for the right way to do things. Um, the theses that I'm outlining here, I'm, I'm, I mean, obviously I'm committed to these theses and this is being a good way to think, uh, I kind of approach what it means to be human. Uh, but I do talk in the book about there may well be other ways of setting up an anthropology, even a Christological anthropology. Mm. So the 11 theses are really more descriptive of how I'm going about thinking about the human person from a Christological perspective um, with maybe a hint of prescription, um, because I think this is a good way to do it, but leaning a little bit more heavily on the descriptive side of things. Um, but specifically on this thesis, Jesus is the revelation, the unique revelation of what it means to be truly human. I mean, this goes to the core of the project. Um, there are lots of ways that people have sought to understand what it means to be human. Uh, some of them are explicitly non-theological. Uh, we're going to use all kinds of extra-biblical, um, uh, non-theological resources to think about humanity. I actually think that's kind of the default posture, even for most Christians today. Uh, we tend to default to the sciences or whatnot as offering the surest basis for knowing kind of all the stuff that we need to know about being human. Uh, you can also do it from a pervasively theological perspective, but one that isn't explicitly Christological. Um, think here of Jewish uh, uh, theologians or Muslim theologians or even many Christian theologians. Um, who think that some type of more broadly theological framework is the right way to approach anthropology. The argument of my book is that uh, a Christian theological anthropology should be a Christian anthropology. Um, so it should be kind of robustly rooted in uh, Christology uh, with the person and work of Jesus revealing what it means to be most fully and truly human. Now, at one point with that first thesis, uh, you you clarify that, okay, uh, when we look at anthropology, specifically through this lens, this Christological lens, you say um, that this is truly revealing what it means to be human when we, when we look at Christ. But at the same time, you use a specific language. You say, for example, that, um, and we can get to this in one of your later theses, but uh, you say at one point that the, the anthropologic centrality of Jesus does not entail that we must derive everything we know about humanity directly from the humanity of Christ. Can you flesh that out? Yeah, you're right. That does go to one of my later theses. Um, but the idea here is, uh, you think the kind of different conceptions of what it means to say that something is a central truth for some sphere of life. Mm -hmm. um, for it to be central doesn't mean that it is in itself exhaustive for everything that we need to know about that broad sphere. Um, so to say that Jesus is central for our knowledge of humanity doesn't mean that I have to look to Christology to get my understanding of how mitochondria function okay. um, or yeah, what the kind of the relationship between humans as biological systems might be to other kinds of biological systems. Mm -hmm. um, 
to claim that it's central, though, means that if all of those other kind of facts and details are rightly understood, they will be understood in some orientation to Jesus Christ. If we're going to claim that he's the center, then he's the orienting truth for everything else we kind of discover along the way. Um, so that it becomes not re- not kind of uh, Christologically reductive, or people often use the language, particularly when talking about someone like Karl Barth, that an approach like this is Christomonistic. Okay. It's attempting to derive all claims about humanity directly from Christology, and that's not what this is doing. Mm. That, that's a very helpful uh, qualification. Now, in your second thesis, you say the epistemological centrality of Jesus derives from the fact that his humanity is ontologically fundamental for the existence of all other humans. What do you mean by that uh, specifically? Yes, what this thesis is trying to do is it's really trying to unpack the uh, the why of the first claim. Right, The first claim is a pretty robust claim that Jesus is um, the orienting truth mm. for everything that we rightly and truly know about what it means to be human. But that just raises the question of why in the world would we make a claim like that? What makes it the case that Jesus is fundamental in the way that the first thesis claims? So the second thesis then sets up um, uh, an ontological relationship between Jesus' humanity and the humanity of the rest of us. So that it's that ontological grounding claim that makes the thesis claim of the first one make sense. So the argument being here that um, uh, that Jesus' humanity is the uh, I'll say it again, it's the ontological ground, it's the basis upon which. Um, some people like to use the language of paradigm or pattern or archetype or prototype or whatnot, um, but that's from the very beginning of the uh, of, kind of the eternal decree in which God determines to act and create and do all the things that flow from that. Uh, that Jesus is the and the incarnate Jesus is the one who orders all of God's creative actions towards humanity, making him then the eternal ground of just what it means to be human. In your third thesis, you argue that the the fact that Jesus is epistemologically and ontologically fundamental to humanity means that Christological anthropology is inherently teleological, and I think I'm right if I in, in adding uh, even eschatological. Now that may really yeah. surprise uh, some people. To, maybe as they focused on anthropology, maybe they bring in Christology, but but here you're even moving beyond that, transcending above that, yeah. and saying. Actually, there's even a, a a telos here, an eschatological focus. Maybe in, in what way uh, can we say eschatology factors into our anthropology? Yeah, so um, you know, two things to say here. I mean, one, uh, we do tend to operate um, a lot of times in theological anthropology with what we might call more of a protological imagination where our understanding kind of, of what most fully reveals what it means to be human uh, gravitates toward, let's say, Genesis 1 and 2. And we spent a fair bit of time looking at Adam and Eve in the garden. Genesis commentary is often factor large in this process. As we seek to really understand what it means to be human, we look at the beginning, um, probably based on the conviction that the pre-fall humanity is going to most fully approximate that which God has intended for human persons. Uh, And so we have a gravitational pull toward the beginning of the story in many Christian anthropologies. Uh, you could make the claim that a Christological anthropology is going to kind of attract your anthropological imagination more toward the middle of the story, kind of climax, uh, the gospel narratives and whatnot. And actually, I'm going to argue in a second here that that's absolutely the case. Um, 
but it does so in a way that establishes a um, kind of a trajectory anthropology. Uh, if what we see in Christ is the um, the, the fulfillment of what God has always been after from the very beginning of the story. Well, that's not what we have in Genesis 1 and 2. Uh, what we have in Genesis 1 and 2 is quite literally the beginning of the story rather than account, an account of where the story is going. Um, so that you will in, inherently on this kind of an account end up with an understanding of humanity that is going to be somewhat teleological. Uh, there's a narrative that's involved here. Uh, and it's a narrative uh, such that the beginning of the story is important but probably shouldn't be that which we focus our attention upon for the sake of understanding what the story is about and what it means to be human within the context of that story. That, that's going to be inherently teleological dynamic. Um, the eschatological piece that you're picking up on, of course, is the idea that the story doesn't stop uh, when it hits its climax. It's a story that continues on into eternity. Uh, and so there will be a uh, kind of a significantly eschatological aspect to the story in that if it's a narrative, you really have to understand the whole narrative from beginning to end to get a sense of what it's revealing about the people who are constituted by that story of God working with his people. Um, so I do want to look kind of teleologically and even eschatologically. Uh, what I don't want to do, though, is uh, there are certain ways of doing theological anthropology that uh, rather than being kind of exclusively protological, end up being almost exclusively eschatological. Uh, and given how uh, scarce our information is about the status of humanity on into the eschaton, um, down that road lies a pretty robustly apophatic anthropology, right? an anthropology in which we can claim very little about what it means to be human. Um, and I don't actually think that's the right way to go if we're going to be kind of robustly, kind of rootedly Christological in this, uh, that it will be an anthropology that has its center in what we see in Jesus, um, in, in his incarnate life and work. Um, but it doesn't... so. Let me say it this way. It doesn't ignore the eschatological. That is an important part of it. But the, to claim that it is inherently teleological, I don't think requires me to kind of push everything about humanity off into the future so that it becomes this kind of ephemeral, we know not what kind of anthropology. Right, right. It, you know, at one point, and I think that this may help kind of navigate those those extremes, uh, you, you know, you've argued that, well, when we when we think about, say, original creation, uh, and then and then also uh, kind of the end point, which is eschatology, you, you argue, well, it's not a, it's not a mere restoration. Um, mm -hmm. In other words, when we talk about consummation, eschatological consummation, and how that ties us back to the incarnation, um, yes, there's this continuity, but um, correct me if I'm wrong, you, you turn to Paul and, and argue that, well, um, there's actually a, a transformation that takes place in this this new creation reality. Am I am I saying that right? Uh, is that how yes. you've? How would you? Yes, that's correct. Unpack Paul at that point. Yeah. Um, well, to talk briefly about the idea of, of a restoration anthropology, so that the end is like the beginning, and you get kind of a circular account, and the goal is to get back to the garden and be in the status that Adam and Eve have. What, what I do find helpful, though, is to, to kind of recognize even on that kind of account. Uh, you have very few theologians who are restoration anthropologies completely. Mm. Right? Almost everybody has their end state being at least a little bit different than their beginning state. Because if that wasn't the case, then you would face the possibility of yet another fall. 
because uh, to be back in the condition of Adam and Eve is to, again, be liable to the possibility of sin, and there's no stability in your eschatology that way. Um, most Christian anthropologies um, want to avoid that. And so the end state is at least sufficiently different from the beginning state or sufficiently transformed, if you want to use that language, um, so that we are in a slightly higher state because we're no longer susceptible to the fall and eschatology is stable. Uh, And so I think almost all Christian anthropologies are uh, teleological to a degree and that that just kind of gets hidden at times because lots of theologians use the language of return and don't always ways kind of highlight the fact that it's not a complete return, uh, that there is an elevation of some sort that happens in that account. Mm. Um, now, I tend to think that there's something more transformative going on than uh, kind of a, a mere, we're not able to um, uh, to lapse into the fallen state. Uh, so I think you're probably talking about the chapter of the book where I'm dealing with 1 Corinthians 15 and looking at Paul's eschatology through the language of the resurrection and what he talks about the body. Um, and particularly the idea of the body being a seed that gets planted and then um, kind of becomes the resurrection body. Uh, and so I want to highlight in that account both continuity and discontinuity between the humanity that we experience now and the humanity that we experience into the resurrection. But the key move that I think the key move that I made in that argument is that Paul's not grounding all of that in a fall uh, resurrection narrative. Uh, so that our bodies need to be transformed because of the fall. I think in particularly the latter half of 1 Corinthians 15, he's using a creation resurrection logic that even our bodies in the creation state themselves were intended for a transformation that would lead into eschatological consummation. With all this talk about eschatology and consummation, uh, your fourth thesis is is very relevant. Uh, you say the fact that Jesus's humanity is ontologically fundamental where the existence of all other humans does not result in either soteriological universalism or anthropological exclusivism. First things first, uh, for our listeners, let's could, perhaps we could define each of these and and uh, explain. Well, you know, how do we avoid uh, both of these extremes? So, what is so soteriological universalism in comparison to anthropological exclusivism? Yeah, so soteriological universalism would be the idea that uh, salvation, the soteriological piece of that, uh, in some way that the scope of salvation includes all persons, possibly all creatures, possibly even including the fallen angels and whatnot, depends on how far you want to extend that scope. Um, But where the scope of of salvation is universal in some fairly robust sense, and you're going to get different explanations for why that's the case, how it comes about that all get saved in the end. Uh, But kind of the, the key of soteriological universalism is that extension of the scope of salvation to include all people or all things. Uh, anthropological exclusivism would be a little bit of the flip side of that. Um, it's not a soteriological exclusivism, which is where uh, Christians have traditionally gone, where the scope of salvation is restricted to some group of human persons. Um, the anthropological piece is actually trying to get at the idea that there are ways of doing this where you end up narrowing the definition of human such that um, um, not all kind of homo sapiens or all those that we might think of typically as being human actually fit within the category of human, uh, that some people that we would think of as human are actually excluded 
from the category of human. That's why it's an anthropological exclusivism. Uh, and I'll say this issue actually came out of the prior book uh, that I did, The Christological Anthropology and Historical Perspective, uh, which I have described before as being kind of the historical homework that I needed to do before I could write the resourcing book. Because uh, I just wanted to look through the course of church history and see how theologians have connected Christology and anthropology in thinking about what it means to be human. And I was actually surprised along the way to find that um, most of the figures that I selected to work with, even though I didn't pick them for this reason, most of them either had an inclination toward soteriological universalism or said things that led people to worry that they have an inclination towards soteriological universalism, or they said things that sounded like they could easily end up in anthropological exclusivism, all right? So if we're all human because we're all included in Christ, then either on the one hand, you end up suggesting that we all get saved because we're all included in Christ, or you end up suggesting that those who aren't included in Christ aren't actually or fully human because they're not included in Christ. Uh, and so I kind of finished this thesis was in the back of my mind as I finished the first book, thinking, all right, if I'm going to do this Christological anthropology thing, I have reasons for thinking that, that, that those are both problematic conclusions. Um, so is there a way of engaging a Christological perspective on what it means to be human without resulting in either of those two problematic conclusions? Mm. Now, now, of course, when we talk about uh, these both soteriological universalism and anthropological exclusivism, like you're saying, uh, perhaps a number of individuals come to mind. Uh, Karl Barth, for example, when we're talking about soteriological mm -hmm. universalism, uh, he's been widely uh, discussed, and the, the conversation seems to always be ongoing, isn't it, uh, with him? <laughs> yep. Um, you know, on the one hand, you know, Bart will come out and say, you know, I am not a universalist, but uh, as He's been interpreted. Uh, both historians and theologians have looked at Bart and wondered, well, does his arguments, uh, does, does the logic of his argument, you know, lean towards or, or you know, end up in a soteriological universalism? Now, I know this is a massive topic, uh, but what would, you know, for our listeners, maybe they're new to this whole discussion of Bart and soteriological universalism, uh, what is your estimation of Bart? Uh, well, first, I love Bart's theology. Um, Bart was the um, kind of the theological figure that got me wrapping my head around a Christological anthropology in the first place. Um, somewhat unexpectedly, I had going into my doctoral program, I had this question of the relationship between Christology and anthropology in mind already. That was kind of at the heart of my original research proposal. And then I backed into Bart as uh, he was proposed to me by Alan Torrance, my supervisor, that Bart might be a good dialogue partner for me as I was working through these issues. Uh, and so my dissertation became uh, kind of half conversation with Bart about Christological anthropology and then half trying to apply that to an issue. So he's been very influential, informative for me. Um, on the kind of the specific question about what we do with Bart and universalism, you're right to say, if the question is, is was Bart a universalist? The answer has to be no, right? Because typically we would define a universalist, right? That's an identity label um, as somebody who kind of explicitly affirms or endorses soteriological universalism and Bart doesn't. He denies it. Uh, so he himself cannot be considered a universalist. So the conversation is entirely about 
Um, are there trajectories or motifs within Bart's theology that seem to require soteriological universalism or maybe slightly less strongly stated, seem to push in that direction? Um, and that, that although that's something that Bart himself resisted and didn't want his theology to go that way, uh, people will argue it kind of does anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's all entirely driven for the purposes of our conversation from the fact that Bart wrote his Christological anthropology in the doctrine of election. Uh, that is the first of all, uh, again, the logically first of all of the decrees in Bart's theology. Um, and the doctrine of election is inherently a soteriological doctrine, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's about um, who does God choose to join to saving relation with himself? Um, and usually match then with the doctrine of reprobation and whatnot. Uh, well, in Bart's theology, Jesus just is not only the object of election, the one who gets chosen, but also the subject of election, the one who does the choosing. Um, and so therefore, Jesus and all those um, uh, who participate in him are so are, are that comprises the scope of election. Um, Well, if Jesus is the ontological ground of humanity, like we talked about earlier, uh, then all humans are ontologically in Jesus in some sense. And if that then comprises the sphere of election, then that just raises a lot of questions about wouldn't that clearly suggest that all people get saved Mm -hmm. at the end of the day? Mm -hmm. Um, So so certainly for me, Bart is one of those um, uh, who developed a Christological anthropology in a way that I think inevitably raises the question, at least, of soteriological universalism um, and does so in a way that is notoriously difficult to avoid. Um, uh, I have argued in a couple of like conference papers and whatnot that I'm not 100% convinced that Bart's theology has the resources to get around the question. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I tend to lean in the direction of those who are a bit more critical of Bart on this. Um, but I completely understand and appreciate there are pretty influential Bart scholars who are firmly convinced that his denial of universalism is um, uh, coherent. Um, I will say, don't agree. There are some people who seem to suggest that Bart almost was disingenuous, like he really believed universalism, but just refused to admit it. Um, and I just find it hard to believe that somebody with Bart's character and personalities, the way he tended to go about doing things, he didn't generally shy away from saying things that were going to upset people. Um, So I think it's more a question about coherence. And I have more questions about that than some others do. Very helpful. Now, now to to answer some of, you know, those questions that, you know, are raised in, in conversation with Bart, is there a way to do Christological anthropology uh, and not go into, say, soteriological universalism or anthropological exclusivism. So, so kind of on the flip side of mm-hmm. that coin, how, how then do we positively then put forward um, a method that, that doesn't end up in that, that direction? Yeah, that I think is the right question. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I'm, I'm not sure because this was just kind of my first trial balloon in the direction of doing kind of robustly Christological anthropology things. Um, I don't know that this book kind of clearly maps that out so much as stakes a claim that um, a, a, a Christological anthropology doesn't need to need to, doesn't need to go down either of those two paths mm. um, to not go down the soteriological universalism path. Um, I, I do think um, 
we need to be careful about how we locate kind of that ontological ground move. Um, of, of course, that's even agreeing that you think that that's necessary, but in the way that I've laid it out, um, uh, because Bart's done the ontological grounding in um, the doctrine of election, uh, or Gregory of Nyssa in the earlier book, who grounded it directly in the incarnation, kind of assuming human nature to itself and then healing all of it. Um, both of those are ways of explaining why Jesus would be epistemologically central, but they do so in ways that seem to kind of immediately involve all human persons within the sphere of election, uh, within the sphere of salvation. Um, and so I think we're going to need resources for talking about there being a universalism in Christ's actions toward human persons. Um, that's the ontologically grounding the, the humanity of all human persons side of it. Um, but the, the, whatever's going on there needs to be different from whatever's going on soteriologically uh, when God acts with human persons for the purpose of salvation. Um, and the, the direction that I've tended to go, uh, it's kind of just historically um, almost trite, but I do think the image of God plays a pretty pivotal role in this and might give us some resources for locating a universality in uh, Christological action toward humanity. Uh, so we're all humans um, in virtue of who Jesus is as a human. Um, uh, but that that doesn't require us to then say that we're all saved because we're Imago Dei beings. That clearly seems to run contrary to the logic of the biblical narrative. Um, so, but then that also, I think, gives us resources. If we can make that kind of distinction between what Christ does in, let's say, humanizing all humans and what Christ does in um, saving um, at least some humans, um, that also gives us resources for dealing with the anthropological exclusivism that I can, I can have a soteriological exclusivism that Christ is acting savingly in and for right. at least some portion of humanity without implying that everybody else is non-human in that. Sounds like Mark, you have a, a yet another book to write. <laughs> <laughs> As you know, you know, one book almost always raises questions that it didn't address, and then you have to figure out whether you want to deal with them further. That's right. That's right. Uh, it always does. It, it never really ends. Um, mm -hmm. Now, in your fifth thesis, you say the epistemological and ontological centrality of Jesus for anthropology entails that ultimate truths about the human person must be grounded in Christology. Maybe you could take a minute here, and I'd love to hear uh, specifically how you distinguish, for example, between gr this language that you're using, right, grounded in as opposed to, say, derived from Christology. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a good question. Um, I probably was leaning toward the language of grounded in um, partly because I wanted to make it a little bit, um, I don't want to say vague, because that doesn't sound terribly academic, um, but I wanted to leave it open to a variety of epistemic connections between Christological claims and anthropological claims. Um, and to some extent, this comes out of uh, interacting with Bart and how Bart does things. But I, I thought he did a very nice job of demonstrating that you can't, there can't be a simplistic or direct move from um, some truth claim about Jesus to some truth claim about every other human who has ever existed. Because um, otherwise, then that, that's what gets you into really problematic claims. Um, uh, let's say, for example, Jesus was male. 
therefore maleness is um, the central truth, uh, a central truth of just what it means to be human, um, so that now men are somehow more human than women are. Um, right, that's grounded in a very direct claim. Jesus is X to all humans are X. Fill in the blanks. Jesus is male, therefore all humans are in some sense male or ought to be male or whatnot. And you do have a minority report in the Christian tradition where there is this kind of hierarchical relationship between the genders such that salvation for women is actually to become more masculine or to take on the masculine characteristics that more aptly participate in the image of the male Messiah. Um, and this is a very minority report, but it's an example of that kind of direct line from Christology to anthropology. And Bart does a good job saying no, that that's not what's going on here. Uh, we have to take more seriously both the the kind of the particularizing features of Jesus's humanity, the, the things that make him the particular human that he is, um, but also some pretty significant discontinuities uh, as well, right? He's sinless and he's not just human, but he's the, the God-man. Um, and so be, for a variety of reasons, there, there will need to be a more complex and nuanced way of moving from Christological claims to anthropological claims. Um, while still maintaining that there, if it's going to be a Christological anthropology, there will, there will be a robust connection of some kind between Christological claims and anthropological claims. And it's that of some kind that I'm trying to leave a little bit open by talking about anthropological claims being grounded in. I think there are probably a variety of ways in which you might be able to do that. Um, uh, I probably could have used derived from, although in certain, um, uh, kind of ways of thinking about language and how language works derived from, of course, grounded it also have a fairly technical definition. I'll just say I didn't have a technical definition in mind um, and wanted to leave that a little bit more open while still affirming a robust connection between the two. Now, perhaps this gets into your next thesis because this language of grounded and versus derived, uh, at, at that point you say Christologically grounded truths about humanity provide an interpretive framework framework for understanding other anthro, anthropological truths. Uh, yep. Is this sixth thesis along the lines of what you were just saying? Yeah. So I'm trying to make a distinction there between what I'm calling ultimate truth claims and other kinds of truth claims. Um, and I'll admit, I, I also didn't try to get very specific about which truth claims fall into which categories. But at least historically, we have thought that something like um, uh, humans are made in the image of God and humans have mitochondria are different kinds of truth claims in okay. terms of their centrality and significance for what it means to be human, right? Intuitively, we just kind of put those into different buckets. Um, and so I'm just kind of labeling those buckets. You've got ultimate truth claims, those things that for, and that would require arguments of their own, but those things that we think are, um, so central to being human that you really can't understand humanity rightly apart from that, and then other kinds of truth claims. Um, and so the, the, what's going on with theses five and six um, is to argue that they're both perfectly legitimate. We need both kinds of knowledge about what it means to be human, um, but that uh, at least in a kind of comprehensive attempt at understanding fully what it means to be human, those other kinds of truth claims need to be rightly ordered toward ultimate truth claims, um, which are themselves then Christologically grounded. Mm. Um, so that something like the image of God then is still functioning. It's still playing a pretty robust role in my anthropology as an ultimate truth claim. 
so that if I'm engaging with um, biologists or psychologists um, or philosophers or whatever, um, I am thinking in terms of how is what they're saying related to uh, what we know about what it means to be human in light of the Imago Dei. Um, but then, of course, for me to say that is, uh, is also to say, um, uh, how is my understanding of what it means to be made in the, in the image of God? itself grounded in what we know about who Jesus is and what Jesus reveals about what it means to be fully human. Um, so you have a Christologically grounded ultimate claim, and then that ultimate claim is itself serving as an ordering um, truth claim for understanding other aspects of human existence. Mm. But I wanted to avoid, it, it'd be very easy, and we touched on this earlier, to kind of hear this kind of Christological language about uh, what it means to be human, and to think that that's necessarily going to sideline or marginalize um, non-theological disciplines or perspectives. Um, and I want to say no to all of that, and I think Bart said no to all of that. Um, and if you kind of go through the book, um, the, the first book, Christological Anthropology and Historical Perspective, there are lots of people who have thought robustly Christologically about what it means to be human, and we're very open to receiving insights uh, from other, all kinds of other perspectives. Now, uh, building off of what you just said, uh, your seventh and eighth theses, uh, perhaps we can talk about both of these at the same time, because you know, we've been using this language of Christology and anthropology, but here you start to get into some of the specifics. In Thesis 7, you say Christological anthropology must pay close attention to the concrete particulars of Jesus's existence. And then the eighth one, you say the particularities of Jesus's existence mean that we must affirm both the continuity and the discontinuity between Jesus uh, and other humans. What what is some of that, uh, well, let me put it this way, what are some of those concrete particulars, and, and how do we carefully uh, affirm, as you say here, continuity and discontinuity? Mm -hmm. So the emphasis on the concreteness of Jesus in Thesis 7 is trying to avoid um, what could easily become an overly abstract way of thinking about Jesus in order to relate him to the humanity of all of the human persons, right? Because we, we know we have these particular features. He was a particular human. He had um, an ethnic identity, uh, gender, sex. Um, he lived at a particular time and place, right? He had his own set of relationships and whatnot. Um, I'm assuming he had uh, a particular height and weight and all those things that could that make us human in our own distinct ways rather than everybody else. Um, and each of those particular at least some problems or challenges uh, for the project that we're talking about here, because each of those makes Jesus different from the rest of us in a fairly significant way. And the greater we lean into those kinds of differences, the more we're going to have problems than uh, connecting Jesus to the rest of us sufficiently to make claims about what it means to be human beyond, like, what does it mean to be the human that he was in his time and place? Uh, we want to move to what does it mean to be human in a way that has implications for thinking about the humanity of the rest of us. Uh, and so it would be easy to try to then solve that problem by stepping back from the particulars um, and focus on kind of vague generalities. Um, he was physical in some way, shape, or form. So physicality kind of broadly is what's important for being human. Um, I, I think I see this fairly regularly when people want to talk about relationality. 
um, right? They, they often don't want to talk about the particulars, uh, the particular relationships that Jesus was in um, and what we kind of see and learn from that. They want to make claims about this really broad, vague kind of relationality uh, as the, the tool that they're going to use then to think about what it means to be human more broadly than that. So thesis seven is saying, no, a Christological anthropology, as I'm envisioning it, um, doesn't begin with those kinds of highly abstractified notions about what it means to be Jesus. It has to remain thoroughly committed to the particular details of Jesus's life. Um, and that doesn't mean that we can't abstract out uh, kind of broad claims as we look at the particulars. Um, but I, I think I'm just nervous about what looks to me like often a too quick move to the abstract um, and a kind of abstraction that leaves the particularities behind, develops the abstract notion, and then that begins to do all of the work in the anthropology. Um, so then um, on connecting the particulars, the, the rest of the humans in thesis eight, that's really just to kind of jump the gun, what I was mentioning earlier about um, we do have a lot of things that emphasize not just the continuities between Jesus and the rest of us and him being fully human, but also the discontinuities in his particular identity um, and not just the particularities of his human existence, but also his um, uh, the fact that he is sinless and divine uh, means that we're, we'll necessarily need resources or tools uh, for um, uh, recognizing the differences while still being able to make connections to uh, the rest of humanity. Now, in your ninth thesis, you make a very important, and, and to those listening, you know, don't skip over this ninth thesis because you make a very important qualification here trying to nuance what you've said so far. You, you state there can be no direct move from Christology to anthropology. What do you mean by direct move? Yep. And here I cheated again uh, in talking about my theses <laughs> out of order. <laughs> I mentioned this one earlier. Um, uh, but this is one that actually comes up whenever I talk with my students about what I have in mind. Uh, they quickly imagine something that violates thesis nine here. Um, and that is that what I'm saying is you, you basically just kind of read the Gospels, figure out who Jesus is, and then kind of quickly extrapolate truths from mm. Uh, this is the pattern of, again, Jesus is X to therefore we are X. Um, and uh, there are times where that move can be made in ways that don't look terribly troubling. So Jesus is loving, therefore we are loving. And nobody's bothered by that particular move there. Uh, you see it fairly regularly in uh, kind of imitatio um, type frameworks mm -hmm. uh, where, where to imitate Christ is to look directly at who he is and then draw pretty straight lines to who we are and how we ought to be in the world. Um, and my argument in thesis nine is that uh, I'm not convinced that we should do that. Uh, we at least should do that rarely. I'm not sure that we should do it ever, uh, that the nuance between Christology and anthropology needs to be, well, more nuanced, um, is we recognize both uh, the importance of those discontinuities as well as the continuities. Um, and so what I like to do with my students is actually to kind of walk them through the logic of like, if I say Jesus is male, therefore to be human is male, they're going to quickly see, Oh wait, I, we may have made a mistake in right. there somewhere. Right. Uh, but then if I say Jesus is loving, therefore we ought to be loving. They're perfectly comfortable with that, even though the logic is identical. And then we get to have a conversation about, all right, is there something going on that actually makes those two different things that it's okay 
for the same logic to be all right in one instance and not all right in the other instance? Or is there something wrong with the, the, that kind of direct move from Jesus to the rest of us um, that should require there to be um, a bit more nuance in both of those moves from A to B, uh, which is what I tend to think is probably the case. Now, some might object, and this leads us to your 10th thesis, some might object, well, all this focus on Christological anthropology, well, then anthropology can't be Trinitarian or pneumatological, but uh, you push against that objection. Yes. Um, And partly it's because it's a pushback on uh, this isn't just about Christological anthropology, but really what does it mean to have a Christocentric uh, uh, approach to theology in general? So this could come up in a variety of avenues. Um, And it's one that uh, lots of theologians who have had the label Christocentric applied to. Um, Usually kind of the, the trailing worry is that they are then either uh, probably not non-Trinitarian, probably sub-Trinitarian, uh, right? There's a de-emphasis on the Trinity and particularly a de-emphasis on the Spirit in that. Uh, and I just don't think that follows. Um, uh, I think it's important that all of the figures that I looked at in the first book, uh, well, all might be a bit strong. Many of the figures that I looked at in the first book uh, had robust pneumatologies and were uh, firmly convinced of the significance of the Trinity for understanding every aspect of, of human existence in Christian theology. Uh, so what I want to say is that to be rightly Christological or rightly Christocentric is to be always already Trinitarian and pneumatological, because mm. uh, you really can't understand who Jesus is rightly apart from understanding his relationship to both the Father and the Spirit um, and the fundamentality of the Father and the Spirit and the Son for um, all that God is doing in the world. Uh, so the Christocentric isn't meant to be kind of exclusive of uh, Trinitarian pneumatological concerns. It's more supposed to immediately direct our attention toward pneumatological and Trinitarian concerns. And I just think, I mean, we could just hang out in the Gospels for a while and see the significance of the Spirit and the Trinitarian dynamics that are at work in the life of Christ. Uh, I think to be firmly convinced that a Christologic and Christological anthropology is actually, I think, the way to robustly ground a a keen pneumatological sensibility in one's understanding of of, uh, the human person. If he reveals what it means to be human, then to be human is to be robustly connected to the spirit at every step along the way. Mark, your last thesis is uh, a fit in light of everything you've said up to this point in our conversation. Your last thesis is a fitting conclusion. Jesus's humanity primarily reveals what it means to be truly human in the midst of a fallen world. And for those of our listeners, this may be uh, what they're really interested in hearing about. Um, how is this the case? Uh, well, I think it's the case in at least two senses. Uh, I mean, one, uh, I am intrigued by the the fact that if you're going to look at, at theological anthropology works, uh, it's not difficult to find uh, um, examples of works that are almost exclusively oriented toward the protological or the eschatological. That kind of what what we're really interested in in thinking about what it means to be human is either humanity post-fall or uh, pre-fall or post-resurrection. Uh, and I want to say those are both important 
you know, the aspects of a theological anthropology. Uh, but it sure looks to be the case that what the biblical authors are primarily concerned about, what the narrative that we're interacting with is primarily interested in, is thinking about what it means to be human in, in the midst of this kind of fallen, broken world, the pre-fall and resurrection. Um, and that that needs to be in some way informed by our understanding of what God was doing in the beginning and what he's doing at the end. Um, but uh, I guess what I'm most interested in is um, how this gives us resources for thinking about what it means to be human and to flourish as humans um, in this fallen state of being redeemed that we find ourselves. Uh, the other piece of this, Matthew, as you know, comes out of one of the chapters where I was reflecting on what happens in the incarnation and whether or not Jesus assumes um, a human nature that is in some sense untainted or unaffected by sin, or does he assume what people have taken to calling a fallen human nature? Um, because the, how you answer that question kind of shapes differently what you think you're seeing in Jesus. Um, on the first of those options, if he assumes a, a perfect, unfallen, unblemished, Adamic, or eschatological human nature, um, then what we see in Jesus is actually radically different from what we ourselves currently have with our own fallen human natures. Um, and you'll need to account for that in thinking um, about the significance of Christology for anthropology, because that's another um, significant discontinuity at work that you need to account for. Um, I ended up, and this is one of the chapters in the book where I, I actually surprised myself. I actually ended up leaning, I kind of went into it thinking that I was going to argue more for that. That's the more traditional understanding of what's going on in the incarnation. Uh, and I ended up kind of arguing myself toward a very modified, but still form of a fallen humanity uh, argument that Jesus assumes for the sake of redemption, uh, the same kind of human nature that we ourselves have, have. Um, which means that then when I'm looking at um, the life of Christ lived in the gospels, um, uh, sinless and obedient and faithful and righteous all the way through. Um, I'm still looking at a life lived in the midst of the same kind of brokenness. Um, uh, I'm looking at a faithful life lived in the midst of the same kind of brokenness that I myself experience. Um, and so that's going to, um, shape my anthropology differently on this one. I'm, I'm going to see Jesus as a revelation, um, uh, not exclusively of protological or eschatological realities, but a revelation of what it means to live faithfully in a sinful world. We've been talking to Mark Cortez, who is professor of theology at Wheaton College and has written on uh, anthropology in a number of volumes. Uh, if you or one of our listeners are interested in exploring uh, anthropology and Christology more, uh, pick up one of Mark's books, Christological Anthropology and Historical Perspective, or Resourcing Theological Anthropology, uh, both published uh, both published by Zondervan. Mark, thank you so much for uh, joining me on the, the Credo podcast. I mean, these are issues, uh, first of all, let me just say, these are issues that oftentimes not even theologians explore in trying to connect the dots. But then secondly, uh, I think that uh, much of you know, these theses, for example, give us a lot to, to dialogue about, maybe even debate about it, it, with uh, you know, the tradition and, and how we receive that tradition or even how we put it together. So thank you for engaging us uh, with these 11 theses. My pleasure, Matthew. I appreciate the time. I love the idea that these theses could give us something to debate about. The whole, uh, Really, the, the main purpose for the book was to hopefully prompt 
more reflection and conversation about how Jesus informs what it means to be human. Um, and so if people want to push back on how I put my theses together, I would love it. And that would just lead to more fruitful dialogue. Now you can fill up on theology each day by visiting credomag.com. There you will find the latest issues of Credo Magazine with articles on key doctrines of the faith and regular video interviews with Dr. Matthew Barrett, where he answers some of the toughest theological questions of our day. Be sure to subscribe to Credo Podcasts to join the conversation, a conversation where doctrine matters.